So welcome to another Crash the Cable podcast. It's been a while, but we're back. Whatever back means. So anyway, um, yeah, this is the Crash the Cable podcast. I'm doing it on my own today. Um, hopefully uh, soon uh, Andrew and I will be back with a very special guest. Um, and this week I'm doing something slightly different. Um, I came across a whole lot of articles written by this guy called... Peter Thompson, who um, he was born 1823 and he died in 1879, and uh, he moved to Dunedin um, in 1862. Well, he left Scotland for Dunedin in 1861. Took him two goes. The first um, ship sank, um, as you do. So he got to New Zealand with his um, wife and three kids um, in 1862. Um, Unfortunately, his wife died soon later that year. Um, and he uh, wrote articles for the Otago Daily Times, our favourite newspaper, um, about his what he called his rambles around um, Dunedin area, uh, including um, you know a 100-mile um, loop, which kind of took in bits of central Otago and the coast. Um, so he's done a lot of exploring, and he wrote articles about it. Um, and so I thought, well, this is kind of like trail running, we run around and um, check out the local geography and things. So what I'm going to do is read um, an article um, by Peter Thompson. A little bit um, more back history, by the way, uh, we have a new um, sponsor. Um, shout out to Taylor and Strong of uh, NID Realty. Uh, they are uh, real estate agents, um, and uh, if you have a look at their uh, website, uh, you'll see that comments for Taylor and Strong uh, often use the words like uh, great communication, uh, professionalism, hard work. So that really fits with Crush the Cargill, which is great. Um, so they go along with our other sponsors of um, Aerodex for good undies, uh, Aerobic Edge for good training, Inch Bar for good beer on tap, and Grid Coffee for great coffee so you can have coffee beer and undies while you enjoy your new house i think that's how it works and get trained anyway um peter thompson he uh wrote an article in 1866 for the otago daily times which was on mount cargill so 5th of april 1866 this was published and i'm going to read it to you and at the end, there's a, you know, it's written in 1866 language, so there's some bits you might not understand. So I'm going to have some footnotes at the end, some kind of explanatory comments, which are also fascinating little bits of um, history and background context for what Peter wrote about. He also called himself Pākehā for some reason. I guess he was. Um, so he wrote under the, the um, name Pākehā. Anyway, here you go. Peter Thompson uh, rambles around Dunedin, Mount Cargill. To attain the summit of this hill has long been an ardent desire of the writer, and he has made the attempt several times. On one occasion, from the head of the Northeast Valley, he spent half a day in wandering about the bush there in search for a track or a surveyor's line which might lead in the direction of the hilltop, but after trying several lines, they are all found to end in more or less dense thickets a short way up the side, 
or in another line which led to the right or left. On another occasion from Pine Hill, he made a long excursion into the bush, but was only too glad to beat a retreat to the clearings, and so home, thoroughly baffled and wearied out. But some weeks ago, while visiting a friend who lives on Pine Hill, Pākehā was taken out to see the lions of the neighbourhood, and it was while traversing the bush to a clearing on the higher part of the hill to see some peculiar trees, that a long, straight vista cut through the thick forest leading up the hill was passed at one or two places. On making inquiry, he found that this particular track led so far on the way to the top of Cargill that it would be a very easy matter to get over the difficulties of the remaining distance. So a day was fixed for the journey, but on that day and several others the top of Cargill was shrouded in thick fog. It is this fog which renders the ascent of these hills so risky. The day may be ever so clear, not a cloud to be seen, and the whole of the hilltops in the district glistening in the sunshine, when with very little or no warning a heavy dense mist comes over the summit of one or other hill, but generally over the subject of our attempts, and hangs most persistently for the remainder of the day, just as if the space at the back of the range had been filled with and the fog was running over to this side, the remainder of the sky being quite free from clouds and the sun shining brightly all the time. It must be remembered that in the bush, when a fog comes on, everything has an appearance as if you had seen it, be had seen it before, and you can hardly for the life of you tell where you are, though a minute or two before the horizon was clear all around. As if a curtain had dropped, all your landmarks vanish, and you are left to grope your way as best you can. It was therefore with a full knowledge of the work to be done that the writer started the other morning to make a ramble in this direction, with the intention of taking the Pine Hill Road as far as it went, and then the line above mentioned, and the bush, to the summit of Cargill, providing himself with a compass, a tomahawk and a few matches in case of necessity. Leaving home about ten o'clock, the made part of the Pine Hill Road was soon got over. The day was fine, though the sky had a threatening look about it, which seemed as if rain was at no great distance. But shortly after entering the bush, the sun shone out cheerily, and the difficulties of the first part of the ascent, the crossing, crossing gullies amid plenty of nasty, sticky mud, were rapidly left behind. After a little while, the surveyor's line spoken of before was entered on, and then commenced a walk which was hardly its parallel for a fair, hard-working trial of a man's leg power. Anyone who has traversed a recently cut line of this nature will remember what it is like, and what they had to get over, under, through or across in order to go ahead. The one in question ran northeast and southwest as straight as an arrow, along the side of the hill, stopping for no obstruction of any sort. If it met a tree, it was either cut down and thrown aside, or a piece cut off its side, sufficient for the chaining operation. If it came to rocks, it was carried over them. If it met a gully, it went down one side and up the other, no matter how steep, wet or dirty it might be. And all this in the midst of the thickest bush in the province, rendering it quite impossible to see any distance to the right or left, and only for a very short distance to the front or rear, unless when a bit of level ground occurred, or when the rising or falling gradient was somewhat uniform. Some magnificent cedar and pine trees were passed at various points of the line, 
as well as a number of smaller trees and shrubs, which are not to be found growing on lower land. After traversing this line for upwards of two miles, it was thought desirable to have a lookout in order to ascertain the position. For this purpose, a cedar growing on the edge of a small declivity was climbed, and a first-rate prospect of the surrounding trees obtained, but very little as to our real position as regarded the top of Mount Cargill. A little way further on, the land fell a little, and a small, seemingly deserted clearing was reached, from which a tolerable view was had. Signal Hill was just opposite, and beneath our level. The port road, the junction, were all in sight, but our destination seemed as far off as ever. A few hundred yards further on, the land began to dip at a great rate, so much so that in a very short distance the track fell at least a thousand feet. And after going on for a little distance, over a muddy, wet bottom covered between the trees with a thick growth of ferns, it came to an end altogether. At a peg in the middle of a cross-cut mark in the ground, this was very provoking, more particularly as the ascent to the hilltop seemed to be from this point, quite straight though not easy, the whole height of the mountain being visible in one mighty slope. However, from the peg just past, another line ran up, up the hill again at right angles. So up the hill accordingly we had to proceed, climbing over or under a host of obstacles, the line in this case running northwest. About a mile or so of this having been gone over and an elevation attained somewhat superior to the one we had dropped down from, another was met running in the desired northeast direction. This seemed to be right on the shoulder of a hill, for now and then partial glimpses of hills beyond could be seen. At the foot of a tree we picked up a tobacco pipe, with the dottle still in it, but green with moss from the time it had lain. A gradual rise was then met over dry and comparatively smooth ground through a finely wooded district, the line appearing almost like a narrow tunnel as it kept its steady onward course. After proceeding another mile or so, our road lay almost level for a bit, and from a big pine tree on the edge a most magnificent view was had. But the summit was yet a good way off, so at it we went again and after a rather stiff pull the top was reached, at least as far as the line went, for at the point now reached the hill sloped down at a steep pitch for an, almost, for an immense distance, and the whole of the north side of the hill was in view, Blueskang, Kilmog, the north road. After resting here a little, admiring the extensive view, we struck in to the right along the ridge, and after penetrating the bush for about 300 yards, the summit of Mount Cargill was under us, 2,297 feet from the level of the tide. It is a little irregular projection surrounded by trees, so that unless you climb up one it is impossible to see about you. The tomahawk here came in useful, for getting up one of the pines and cutting away all the branches obstructing the vision, a magnificent lookout was obtained. The whole horizon was in sight. To the north lay the heads, the sand bank at the lower kike, the lighthouse, the lower harbour. To the northwest was Waikoiti, and the coast to the point near Moraki. Nearer lay Blueskin Bay, all in sight, the quiet Waitati Valley, the main north road, Mopanui, and the other hills running off to Haywards Point. 
To the west lay a broad valley covered with the same thick bush as that at our side, which continued to the northwest, and beyond there was a series of hills and ranges, culminating at the extreme horizon in glittering snow-covered peaks far away in the interior. To the southwest lay Flagstaff and its bare green ranges, and to the south-southwest could be seen part of the Tyree Plain, as far as the Waihola Lake, Saddle Hill, and the coast away to Nuggets Point. Then to the south lay Dunedin, calm and still as if laid out on a map, the lines of Great King and George Streets being remarkably well defined, but we were too far off to see anything moving on them, a few boats beating out in the bay being the only signs of life. The hills and the peninsula then came in, and glimpses of the ocean beyond could be seen now and then. At Portobello in particular, the beach where lies the wreck of the twice unfortunate victory was plainly viable. Nearer were the islands near Port Chalmers. After feasting our eyes on the prospect, the idea of return came uppermost. So making our way back towards the track a little, a large heap of dead wood was got together. Fire applied, a lot of green branches thrown on the top to make a smoke, and a fire a couple of yards high was soon blazing. But the strong wind, which nearly always blows on these hills, prevented the smoke rising, and carried it all away down the slope to the north. So it was left to burn out. After getting back to the line again, the tomahawk was used to cut a big initial on the side of a pine as a memento of our visit, and then downward hole was the word. Though difficult at times, the line was rapidly traversed, and it was not long ere the junction of, one, of the one we ascended from the valley below was passed. But as this line still held straight on, it was kept in preference. The new part led over some very rough, rocky ground, ascending and descending alternately, till we were well over the ridge, when it was all downhill, and we proceeded as rapidly as a thousand and one obstructions would allow. It was very fatiguing and trying to the legs as there were many stumps and stones not very easily seen, but perseverance at last brought us out at a point not very far from where we entered the bush, close to the line of the Pine Hill Road. The last two miles were of a most villainous nature, wet and muddy in the extreme, the feet sinking over the ankles at every step, notwithstanding the care taken and only stepping on the fallen branches. There were remarkably few birds seen on the hill, a few robins were always hopping about every time a halt was made, a paraquet or two were observed on the high cedars, and at the very summit the wood was quite musical with the loud notes of green linnets, which were wonderfully tame. Two or three pigeons were seen flying among the pines at the lower part of the hill. On the higher part of the hill there were a good many strange trees and shrubs, some of them very pretty. One of them, on being cut, emits a most horrid smell, something like a bad breath smelling of onion or garlic. Right on the peak there was growing to our great surprise among the other shrubs a quantity of flax, some of the flower stones with a seed pod just formed. But what is most beautiful in the botany of Mount Cargill is the abundance of the most lovely mosses and ferns which cover every stone and fallen tree and many of the trunks of those in the sides of the track have large patches of mosses growing on them of large size and of several different sorts. A collector would make a splendid harvest. 
On passing through a small clearing on the way up, a herd of wild cattle were seen, consisting of a fine bull, several cows and three calves. On shouting at them, the calves and cows made off at once, clearing the fence like as many deer, while the bull followed more slowly and crashed through the fence as if it had been so many reeds, and they were to be heard tearing away through the bush for some time after. The time occupied in making the ascent was nearly six hours, including the detour between the two lines, but only two and a half hours were occupied in coming home, where we arrived about 6.30, as tired as possible, having found the getting to the top of Mount Cargill rather a heavy job indeed. April 3rd, 1866, Pākehā. Okay, so um, now the footnotes. And uh, it is a bit weird, me just talking to myself. So I'm going to assume that I am talking to myself, but I'm two people. So I am actually talking to myself. But anyway, um, so I'm going to ask myself a question, and then I'm going to ask my que- answer the question, or kind of attempt to answer the question, so I'm going to have a bit of a conversation anyway, um, just because that seems to make more sense to me. I've never been good at monologues. I used to lecture and really didn't enjoy it, um, so now I prefer interactive style teaching. Um, yeah, anyway, so um, uh, Peter, aka uh, Pākehā, um, crushed the cargo, 1866. Um, now, my first question here is, is, is how did he get there? Um, what was he? What route did he take? And it's really quite interesting because um, he says he he looked from Northeast Valley but couldn't find any any um, routes, uh, which is fair enough because the track that currently exists from Bethune's Gully up to Mount Cargill, I think, was built in nineteen seventies, so eighteen sixties. It wouldn't have been there. Um, probably something was built before nineteen seventy, but. Um, Anyway, it wasn't there when he looked, and so he found this, what he calls a survey line, when uh, he was up visiting a friend up Pine Hill. Now, interestingly enough, he talks about Pine Hill Road. There is a Pine Hill Road currently, of course, but it's quite different from uh, where it was then. The original Pine Hill Road used to go up the side of Pine Hill Creek, which um, is actually quite a steep little creek, uh, and I know it quite well because it's actually in my backyard. And so Pine Hill Road was in between my house and the creek. Um, fortunately, it's not there anymore. And I'm planting it up with some totara and beach and manuka and all sorts of things. Um, but you can still see the um, ledge that was the Pine Hill Road came up from um, down near the beginning of uh, Pat Moss Ave down in Leaf Valley. And uh, pretty much went in a straight line up the creek. Um, and joined the current Pine Hill Road right up where um, there was a bit of a hairpin in the current road. And uh, if you look at the paper roads, any maps of paper roads, you can see there is actually a, um, a paper road that continues from the end of Pine Hill Road on a straight line towards Mount Cargill. Um, and these paper roads are quite interesting. They were um, created... Uh, from England in the, in the mid-19th century. So they, they came from these survey lines that Peter Thompson was talking about. So what happens in, in England, they thought, right, let's settle this new place uh, over in New Zealand. And no, none of this 
people doing uh, making the maps of course have been to New Zealand but they thought right let's put roads uh, in a grid pattern um, across the land and then some poor surveyor had to go along and, and um, mark out these straight lines. Some of these straight lines were up um, 30 degree slopes such as Baldwin Street um, and uh, some of them kind of haven't become roads because they're so entirely impractical. But the surveyors must have thought that the people in England were nutty because they did actually go and peg out these um, these paper roads. And so uh, now we ha still have some of these paper roads and they are actually still public, but they go through bush and gullies and paddocks and some of them, probably most of them, are completely inaccessible and won't ever get formed into a proper road, but they're still actually public uh, land. And so if you want to know where paper roads are, you can um, Google Walking Access New Zealand and there's a map there that shows you where all these paper roads are. Oh, this is a bit of a sidetrack, isn't it? Anyway, um, they're actually legally called unformed legal roads. Um, they have the same legal status as any other legal road, so you can wander along them, even if they go through a paddock or someone's house. Um, but it is good to be sensitive um, and not go through someone's house. Actually, the paper roads won't go through someone's house because someone can't build there. But if they do go through someone's paddock and it's stock there and things like that, um, the farmer... Uh, can tell you to bugger off if you can prove with absolute certainty that you're on the paper road then he can't tell you to bugger off but uh, you can't prove that because <laughs> they're not marked and the GPS may be not quite as accurate as you would like so basically be um, careful if you want to go wandering around the paper roads and there's lots of them around Dunedin there's, um, some of them being turned into tracks anyway um, Signal Hall and there's one uh, uh, near Mount Cargill that we use often. Um, if you want to use them, just be sensitive. Anyway, paper roads. So you can see some of the remains of the survey lines that um, Peter Thompson would have been following by looking at the paper roads map. And there is one that goes straight up from Pine Hall um, towards Mount Cargill. And there's one um, slightly over to the west, uh, which is... Uh, and a line from Max Welton Street that goes up. So I suspect he took one of those. I'm not sure which one. Uh, it could have been the Pine Hill one. It could have been the Max Welton one. But either way, it kept going in a straight line on the side of the mountain. It certainly wasn't the road that has become Cowan Road because that's up the ridge and he wouldn't have ended up back down in a gully. And he says he dropped about a thousand feet, which is quite a significant drop. I suspect he's exaggerating. Could have been one or two hundred meters, so maybe yeah, five hundred feet, perhaps. But um, <laughs> um, and uh, he probably, I think, if he'd gone one of those routes, he could have kept going in a straight line until, especially Max Welton one, until close to the the lookout, which is halfway up the Bethune's Gully track. So he was probably close to that. Um, wouldn't quite have been that far. And then he made a sharp left 90 degree turn, headed off to the uh, northwest where he was heading northeast. And he climbed up um, and got to another survey marker, which probably I think would be roughly where Cowan Road is now. That's the main road up Mount Cargill. 
Then he took another 90 degree right turn, headed up the ridge, um, and came to the next ridge uh, near the summit of Mount Cargill, where he um, hung another right, followed that up a couple hundred metres to the summit. He talks about the summit and uh, says that he had to climb a tree to get to the top, which is where his tomahawk came in handy. I like what he had in his race pack. His, um, his essential gear consisted of a tomahawk and a box of matches. Interesting. <laughs> anyway, um, there wasn't seam sealed jacket in there, not that he talks about. Um, but there is a picture of uh, Peter Thompson and he wears a fairly heavy coat. I think he was um, dressed for the weather. So he gets to the summit. Um, and he says there's lots of trees. He talks about cedar and pine. The cedar is a, a native mountain cedar. Still plenty of those up Mount Cargill. Um, but you don't have to climb a tree anymore to see the view, uh, which is great. Except, of course, that means we've lost lots of forest. Uh, the forest got destroyed 1914. There was a massive, massive bushfire. And this uh, bushfire, it, um, I've got some stuff from the Otago Daily Times 1914 that talks about it. It says the lurid flames startled the residents of the city. Uh, whole of Mount Cargill was one massive flames which were leaping skywards in all directions lighting up the landscape for many miles around. Um, so it was, was quite a massive, massive um, fire, and it roared all night. Um, and uh, there was a lot of sawn timber, and some sheds were lost. The houses and farms on the hills were speared by a drop of the, in the wind and a downpour of the rain the following day. Um, but there was uh, one thing the fire didn't spare was acres of forest. So it left the summit of Cargill smouldering um, and there was just a few remaining tall trunks of um, the native cedar trees. So Peter talks about cedar and pine. A cedar is a native cedar, or, um, also called, uh, whoops, where'd my notes go, um, pahotea, um, and it's a... Uh, it doesn't like burning. It's quite fire resistant. And so it was a very hot fire, so it, it did a good job of burning, but the trunks didn't burn down um, like the other trees. And so those trunks were actually still remaining. There's a lot of um, kind of dead trunks sticking up into the sky when you walk up the Mount Cargill track. Um, and uh, those are the remains of a cedar from 1914. And they would have been hundreds and hundreds of years old so that's kind of sad. He talks about pine. Um, that would have been native pines, which are, they're not really pines at all. Things like um, rimu and uh, meadow trees. There are still some big native meadow and rimu uh, tree up there, remains. Um, they would have just been completely destroyed, but some remained. So that's pretty cool if you go up about halfway, you see some big examples of those. But they would have been all the way to the top, and uh, he had to climb a couple to actually be able to see the view. If I go back a little bit, he talks about lots of clouds. It's really interesting. He says it took a few days before he could, uh, Mount Cargill was cloudless, so he could go up. And we still, we still see that in Mount Cargill. There's a, um, 
what we call the blue skin blanket, blue skin bay over the other side. When it's a northeasterly, um, blue skin bay covers with, with cloud and it kind of seems to creep over and form a cap on top of Mount Cargill. So the rest of Dunedin is in brilliant blue sunshine and you look north northeast to Mount Cargill and there it has this white cap on the top. But um, actually uh, the type of forest that used to completely cover Mount Cargill and is still there in a little bit um, is called a type of cloud forest. It's a temperate cloud forest. Cloud forest usually uh, grows in the tropics. Um, and many of you probably know that Dunedin isn't the tropics, but occasionally it grows in temperate zones, um, like Mount Cargill, uh, Fiordland, uh, Mount Taranaki. Uh, so just a few places in New Zealand, there is this temperate cloud forest. So it's like the, the forest um, actually attracts and um, creates its own clouds. So it would have been a lot cloudier at the top of Mount Cargill then when before the forest burnt down uh, than it is now and it's kind of good enough now so yeah lots of cloud forest um the uh native cedar loves cloud forest it's got a leaf that kind of attracts the 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 water makes it condense in its leaves and it creates its own rainfall really so it loves the moisture and the cloud forest is full full of lots of ferns and mosses that um Pakeha talks about in his uh, article. So anyway, he gets to the top, he climbs a tree, he looks around and sees the view, um, and that's pretty cool. He um, At one stage he talks about looking out to uh, the uh, east um, and seeing Portobello, and past Portobello, across the harbour, he could see, on the other side of the peninsula, he could see a beach named after the unfortunate victory. Victory was a ship. So Victory Beach is the beach, and it's the largest beach on the Otago Peninsula. It's on the far side of the peninsula, the north end, and, and uh, it's, it's, um, it's named after the Victory Steamship, which was sailing in 1861 from Dunedin to uh, Melbourne. Um, and as it went round Tyro ahead and started on to go around the south of New Zealand to head off to Australia. Um, the captain decided to have a break, um, so he left the ship in the control of the uh, first mate. First mate was a bit tipsy and ran it aground on the beach. So um, the boat sank, uh, <laughs> everyone got off, no one died. Um, you can still see the remains of the shipwreck. Uh, a mate and I ran out and uh, had a look at it last weekend, actually. There's a great big flywheel sticking up in the surf. And um, the uh, first mate, because he was drunk, he got um, convicted of drunken driving, um, DIC, and, uh, and ship or something, um, and sentenced to three months hard labour. So it's kind of like a, an aerobic edge training plan or something like that. So that was the, the Victory Beach. Peter, oh, what are those birds he's talking about? He says something about paraquets. What are paraquets? Well, that's just an old word for parakeet, kind of a small-looking parrot-like bird, which means it was probably kakariki, because kakariki used to be all over the country. Now you can only see them 
in some places. I've only seen them in Stewart Island. Um, but they would have been all over here, which would have been, wow, fascinating. He talks about a green linnet with wonderfully melodious tunes. So I would presume that would be the Koromako or the bellbird. Um, and he talks about them being lovely and tame. Scary. And he talks about robins hopping around. Every time he stopped, robins hopped up. So just imagine going up Mount Cargill and uh, you stop for a rest and a robin hops out in a kakariki and bellbirds start singing at you. We still have bellbirds, we have tui, we have pigeons, or kereru that he talks about as well. But then they would have had uh, a lot more robins in kakariki. We are actually, um, there have been seen kaka um, up uh, on the Mount Cargill track over the last year or two. And that's because uh, Orokanui have a, um, it's an eco-sanctuary nearby um, that is completely pest-free. And the kaka have been breeding in there and kind of spreading out. And there's been a um, project called Halo Project, um, which is creating a halo, a pest-free halo around Orokanui. Uh, and uh, we are starting to do some um, trapping for them. They have traps all the way up McHale and all the way around Dunedin, two and a half thousand traps to trap rats, possums, stoats, uh, and other pesty things. Oh, going back to the native cedar, um, it's not only fire that can kill them, even though they're resistant to the fire, they don't burn up, but they die. Um, possums can strip them bare and kill a massive na native mountain cedar tree, so that's kind of sad. Anyway, so robins, kakariki, pigeons, tui, bellbird, um, were all present. He talks about the trees. He talks about the cedar, the pine. Um, yep, we can still see some of those. There's the occasional totara um, up there. Not that many. Uh, and uh, he talks about something that stunk. What do you say? It smells like bad breath of garlic and onion that doesn't sound like bad breath to me it sounds like well never mind so anyway he said it emits a most horrid smell something like a bad breath smelling of onion or garlic so that is probably something that's called caprosma thetidissima there's lots of species of caprosma which are native to New Zealand but that one stinks Actually, I think a lot of the caprosmas smell a wee bit, but I don't notice because my sense of smell is pretty much gone. So um, anyway, uh, that's about it. Any other questions? Oh, what do you think about how long he took? Well, he took, he took six hours to get up there, or nearly six hours. Um, but that's because he did uh, take a bit of a detour between two lines that he talked about. So he went up one route, had to take a 90 degree turn to the left and then a 90 degree turn to the right, so a big zigzag. And he came down on a much straighter route, which is probably what is now Cowan Road, or close to it. And uh, so he only took two and a half hours to get down. Part of that, of course, it's downhill. Um, so he got back uh, home about 6.30. So uh, nearly eight and a half hours he is going, which is pretty good. He must have got going before 10. Um, 
which is okay. It was April, so you know it would have been well light then and still light at six thirty in the evening. Close though. Um, I suppose he could use his matches for a headlamp. Um, yeah. Um, so that's eight hours to crush the car. Well, maybe he would have been a bit quicker going up if he'd taken his downward route to get up. May have been um, only you know three and a half instead of six hours. It could have been half time, but even so, that would be five or six hours to uh, do one lap of crush the cargo, which would mean you know at the best he'd be looking at four four laps really, um, which means he doesn't really feature um, on our hall of fame. So sorry, um, Peter Pakiha, we are not going to add your name to the cargo twig. Okay, and that's about all that I have time for this week. Um, yeah, if you have any more questions about any of these, you know, um, let us know. Facebook, um, Instagram, um, there's something else that we have. I can't remember. Oh, you just comment or something. Just ask us questions. Anyway, I, um, I have a few more of these articles if you're interested in finding out more about Peter Thompson's rambles around Dunedin. And uh, I'll see you next week. Bye.